Happy Friday, everyone. Friday, April 19th, 2019. Happy Pesach if you celebrate Passover. Happy Easter if you celebrate Easter. Happy Equinox if you're a a heathen. Uh, Whatever you celebrate, have a great uh, weekend. I'm really excited about today's show. Let me tell you what we got coming up today on Sidebar with John Durant. We're going to start out the show with power lesbian attorney Dina LaPolte, one of the most powerful women here in Hollywood uh, in the music industry, representing everybody from Steven Tyler at Aerosmith to Deadmouth to uh, um, rap artist. I mean, she's just this incredible dynamic identified by Billboard as one of the top 100 power people in Hollywood, and uh, she's going to be my first guest. Incredible woman, and she's come out of, you know, being basically a club kid, is what she was in New York City, to becoming uh, one of the most powerful people in the music industry. Looking forward to talking to Dina LaPolte. And then we'll follow her with Deputy Don Mueller. Actually, he may be a commander or a captain. I'm probably understating his rank, but one of our out LGBT sheriff deputies, he here in Los Angeles County. He came out, though, 25, 30 years ago before it was the popular thing to do. So he has watched the Sheriff's Department transform and reform itself over the decades. Uh, He's the guy that a lot of the new recruits, a lot of the young LGBT sheriff deputies go to for advice and counsel on how to be uh, both an LGBT person and a part of law enforcement, a part of the community that has not always been welcoming to LGBT people. So looking forward to talking to Don Mueller. And then at the end of the show, we're going to end up with one of my personal heroes, Dr. Michael Gottlieb, one of the co-discoverers of the HIV virus here In Los Angeles, he had a really uh, young medical practice, and back in 1981, he started to identify that many of his gay male patients were coming down with strange diseases, uh, pneumocystis, Carini pneumonia, and Kaposi sarcoma, and CMV retinitis. Doxoplasmosis, all sorts of medical terms that none of us should ever have to know or say. And he was the one that started to put together the pieces of the puzzle to identify what would become the HIV virus. So, personal hero, he's been featured in film, television, music, uh, and he's a straight ally of our community. And I'm just looking forward to talking to Dr. Gottlieb as well. So before we get into all that, though, hey, the Mueller report finally came out, and uh, wow, so revealing. It really showed that this guy in the White House is probably one of the most erratic, mercurial, unstable, unfit persons to ever occupy 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, and the only thing that probably prevented it from being worse with a lot of people in the White House that were close to him and ended up not following his orders. <clears throat> they knew that what he was prescribing was unlawful, illegal, unethical, and people from Don McGahn to Jeff Sessions to all sorts of people within the inner circle just defied his orders, refused to do what he wanted because they knew he was wrong. And, uh, you know, our Attorney General, William Barr, what a fluke, man. What a, what a fluke. That's all I can say. You know, here he is supposed to represent the interests of the people of the United States of America, not any particular person, including the president. And he has completely abandoned his role as independent uh, enforcer of the rule of law 
and become just another stooge for Donald Trump and trying to soft pedal the Mueller report. 480 pages reduced to four where he uh, tried to convince everybody that uh, that the president uh, was not colluding with Russia and that there was no finding or enough evidence to find obstruction of justice. Well, of course, now we've got a, a redacted version of the report, not the full report. Hopefully the Congress gets the full report someday, but a redacted version that shows something very, very different. And that is that Robert Mueller... Uh, had he the power, the authority, the direction to prosecute, he would have prosecuted Donald Trump for obstruction of justice. But uh, he was told from the get-go that it was not within his purview or his authority to indict a sitting president. So he instead has produced a roadmap for the United States Congress to uh, consider taking action for obstruction of justice. And there's just so at least 20 sections of the report uh, where Donald Trump uh, went over the line, uh, attempted to get people to lie for him, create false evidence, hide evidence. Uh, he, of course, he's the, the king of liars. Everything out of his mouth is false, just about. But he tried to get others to produce falsehoods to protect him. And all these people came clean through the Mueller report. And I got to tell you, anybody else, you, me, anybody else who attempted to hide evidence, create evidence, uh, thwart evidence, would be charged with and prosecuted for obstruction of justice. That is the definition of obstruction of justice. And this guy, uh, you know, deserves to be impeached. And we will now see if the Democrats can find their backbone there. I mean, a lot of them are saying, well, politically, it's not good for us. Who cares politically what's good for the Democrats? The point is you've got somebody flagrantly violating the laws of the United States of America, violating the Constitution, and it cannot stand unchallenged. Or Trump will continue to do what he has been doing for the past two and a half years, continue to ignore the rule of law and only do what's best for Donald Trump and not for the American people. And that's why the founders put in the clauses giving the Congress equal power to keep the presidential authority in check. You have a duty, uh, people, Democrats in the Congress, to do what is right and just in order to restore respect for the rule of law in this country. If you do not, he'll just continue to make it worse. And what precedent does it set? It almost gives us back to the days of having a king in the United States who is above the law, and that is not what any of us signed up for. So whether or not the Republican-controlled Senate ultimately votes two-thirds to impeach and remove him is not the question. The question is whether we stand for the rule of law or not. All right, I've had enough ranting on the Mueller report. I'm sure more to be revealed as the weeks and months ahead unfold, and of course, more ranting from me. So we're going to go to quick commercial break. When we come back, first up, power lesbian music industry, Dina LaPolt. Looking forward to the discussion. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. 
Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. One of my guests, many, many uh, clients and friends, and we're now talking with Dina LaPolt here in studio. Dina, welcome to the show. Hi, John. So Billboard 100 identified you as one of the top 100 in the music industry, which is just amazing. Silly. Yeah, no, it's yeah. amazing. I mean, you're a power lesbian, you're a mom, you know, you've been really active. I know that you like rub elbows with members of Congress and U.S. Senators, and and then I just know you as Dina from the block. <laughs> That's how I know yeah. you. From West Hollywood. That's so. right, Dina from the Block. How did you get started in all this? You know, I was a musician, so in a girl band, right? In a girl band, um, not always in a girl band, but I was a musician primarily. And you know, I graduated in music in college, and I majored in guitar. And the first thing that I realized when I got to college was that everybody's better than me. And I really said, I knew then at eighteen years old, I needed to figure out where to be in the music industry or I'm going to have to have a real job. Is this the Bay Area or New York? This was in New York. New York. Yeah, I eventually relocated to San Francisco because I was working for the drummer for Kiss at the time. Mm. I was like his makeshift personal assistant type. Um, He owned a management company. His name was Eric Carr and he like signed heavy metal thrash bands, women, heavy metal female thrash bands and I became like a tour manager slash manager anyway they all moved out west i came out here stayed with my aunt but during the time i was with my aunt in the bay area he got really sick and Mm. ended up dying eventually and i stayed in the bay area Hmm. so and you started to perform in the bay area right i did the first you know the first thing i did is like i've always done is form a band (laughs) i mean really what happened is i went to the indigo girls concert at the concord pavilion i love the indigo girls And I look around, and there's 20,000 lesbians all singing in harmony, and I had an epiphany, and I go, I'm going to form a lipstick lesbian band with the hottest chicks in San Francisco, and we're going to do these cover songs of the Indigo Girls and Melissa Etheridge. That's what I did. And you did. I Ah. did. And how old were you? 20? At that time, 25. Cool. Wow. And this yeah. was the nineties or the early nineties. Early nineties. Yeah. Wow. I bet it was quite that was cranberries really hot that's, back then. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And they then, were very hot. And then you decided to go to law school. Why? I did only well, it was on a, f- a fluke. Actually, I was um playing in the band, teaching guitar lessons to kids. I had to get a job at Enterprise Rent a Car, which was the darkest time of my life and my band got a showcase at this conference in san francisco it used to be called sfo which is like south by southwest and it's not around anymore but it was at the san francisco state university and we got picked to do a showcase at the coco club in san francisco mm. and in the mail i got a booklet that had a badge for the conference and i look in the booklet and there was all these different panels like publishing music publishing and management and anyway there was a panel that was like negotiating your record deals three music lawyers talk about record deals and i'm thinking music lawyers the only music lawyer i ever knew was bill randolph who represented kiss who was like an older white guy in a bow tie and very you know no one liked him (laughs) so i was like i gotta see this a bunch of bill randolphs anyway i went to that panel and i thought i was in the wrong panel because one lawyer had long hair One guy had a tattoo, a huge tattoo on his shoulder, and the other guy had two earrings. And I talked to the guy with two earrings at the end because 
I gathered from the panel his wife was in the San Francisco Philharmonic, and I was still a pompous classical musician. So I picked <laughs> him. We're still friends to this day. Wow. But yeah. he told me, he said, I said, stood in line with my demo tape. He goes, I'm not so taking demos. And I tossed it across the room. I said, that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. I want to go to law school. And he said, well, you have to go to college first. And I said, I did. And I have a degree in music. Does that count? And he goes, I don't know. Call the law schools. I go, what are their names? <laughs> wow. And I took a pen out of his um, coat and I started writing the law schools. And I called around. And within six months, I was in law school. Wow. Got out, passed the bar. And then yeah. how do you start in the music? Because you've gone on to yeah. represent some incredible, some rappers, a lot of prominent yeah. rappers, right? And mm-hmm. and Steven Tyler. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, yeah, I, I can't even go down your client list. I used to know a lot of them. <laughs> you've got quite the client list. Yeah. How did you go from getting out of law school to there? Um, well, you know, I was, well, when I moved down to L.A., I couldn't find a job because I was always in the creative area, the music business, and I didn't know. But the last year in law school, I interned for a music lawyer. Her name was Dina Zachran. She was amazing. She represented like Susan Tedeschi and Cake and people like that at the time. And her husband was Ralph Carney, who played with um, Tom Waits. So I was her intern. And she told me, you have to go to L.A. You cannot live here. Mm. And I go, no, I'm too scared to go to L.A. And plus, I was crystal meth addict, so that didn't really help matters. <laughs> I got in the way a little <laughs> <Yeah>. bit. <laughs> and she fired me. She goes, you need to go. And oh. I, you're, I'm fu- you're fired, so you can't even, you don't even have a job here anymore. Go. Wow. Anyway, I moved to LA, and I moved in with Miss June at the time, who was uh, on the cover of Playboy, <laughs> Carrie Stevens. <laughs> I love a good that. friend of mine. Huh? Um, she was my ex-girlfriend's sister. Wow. Yeah. And I just found my way. Wow. And now you've got an incredible office on the Sunset Strip, right yeah. across the street in from the In your Roxy. building. Yeah, we share a building. That's My law it. practice is there, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. How did you start first, like, pulling clients together? Well, I didn't. I went, I couldn't find a job, and Carrie helped me. I got a job with the guy. She did this segment of hard copy. Remember hard copy yes, on TV? And they did a whole section on feng shui, and the guy that wrote this book, his, his manager, the book was feng shui from beginners by richard webster and his manager was there and carrie said you need to help my friend find a job she's a lawyer and she can't find a job so anyway he helped me get an internship at this lawyer's firm in century city and honestly he like made me blow up his kids basketball and get him lunch and stuff like that (laughs) really important stuff yeah but one thing that was was um noticeable that he was kind of unmanageable so i you know, just really pulled everything together. And at the time, I had just gotten sober as well. So I had nothing else to do but, like, to organize his life. Mm-hmm. And I started getting involved. And anyway, I met a Fanny Shakur there. And um, very quickly on, she realized that I was sober. Cause, or I realized she was sober. She would say things like, I let God go. I let go, go and, and let, let God. God yeah. And first things first. And I don't get in my own way. I don't let myself will run wild. I just take God's direction. And I go, are you in AA? Are you in recovery? And she goes, yes. I said, I'm 30 days sober. And she's <laughs> like, oh, I love you. And my <laughs> boss at the time was horrified, but we bonded very quickly. Wow. And she encouraged me the three years I was at the firm. I went from free intern to getting paid somewhat to kind of getting paid to then getting, and then, you know, finally her encouraging me to open my own firm. And what year was that? 
I opened it in 2001, but she wow. started on me in like 2000. Wow. She was on me regularly. And now you've got a little power from seven or eight lawyers that work with Nine, you? Nine. Nine lawyers that work with you. That's yeah. amazing. It is amazing. And you do all music industry. And I all know you, music you're business. You're on the Capitol Hill and you're lobbying for the right. music industry and yep. lawsuits for the music industry. We just got legislation passed, the Music Modernization Act. Which does what? It um, creates a mechanism to have songwriters get paid their mechanical royalty income from the digital service providers like oh. Spotify and Amazon and Apple. Well, that's how music's distributed now. Right. It's that's no more the, Tower Records. That's right. That's yeah. the predominant method of sales. Yeah. And for uh, uh, interactive service like Apple and Spotify, there's two publishing royalties, a public performance and a mechanical. And the mechanicals weren't getting through because they just didn't know who to pay. So we had to set up a mechanism on how to get those money's paid. I negotiated some songwriters sitting on the board of that committee so they oversee how the money's getting paid. And then it modified some other very important parts of the Copyright Act, like the the one big part was recognizing recordings that were made prior to 1972. Mm. So these artists like the Supremes and Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and Bill Withers, Ain't No Sunshine When She's Gone. Love that song. Not even protected under copyright. Wow. So now they will be protected Mm. uh, for the sound recordings. That is amazing. Yeah, for the first time ever in American history. That is amazing. We're going to have to uh, go to a commercial break here in just a second, but maybe when we come back we can talk a little bit, because you brought it up. I wasn't going to raise it about you being in recovery oh, and yeah. sobriety, but I'm. that's a big part of your story, and yes. I think how you got to where you are, and maybe, maybe you'll share a little bit about I that. I will. Okay. Gang, thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Gang, we're talking to Dina LaPalt, identified by Billboard 100 as one of the most powerful women in, or powerful people, women or men, in, in the music industry in Hollywood, and she's my guest today, and Dina, welcome back. Thanks, John. Now, you, we, since you talked about recovery, you and I were at a meeting this morning. I gave you a cake for 21 years. Years. Today. Today. April 19th, Happy 1998. Birthday. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. So what we know is that LGBT people, that we have a higher prevalence of people who are addicts, yeah. alcoholics. Absolutely. Because of our life experiences. That's our right. brains race and our brains tumble round mm-hmm. and round and sometimes alcohol and drugs are the solution. Yeah. And families kick you out. I mean, not so much yeah. anymore, but it still happens in America. Right. Or we make ourselves crazy, right. you know, just with our own thoughts about mm-hmm. who we are and what we are destined to be and fear. Right takes over and right. yeah and alcohol and drugs seem the solution yeah. but you uh, got, got sober. sober got sober and it changed everything everything <laughs> everything yeah. for the first time ever I was clear 24-7 and I'm still clear 24-7 and it's so funny because when I'm negotiating with other lawyers and they'll go well you said this and I go oh no sweetie no 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 see <laughs> with me because I've been sober for two decades I don't remember I don't forget anything <laughs> so I don't know what you did last night but what I remember is the way it goes like this yeah there's silence on the phone because <laughs> you know what you could always feel it out because 
even right. someone who's normie, right. like sometimes they go on a little bender or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? A little bit a, of a hangover. A the little next bit, day. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you yeah. know, I never have that situation. So. Were you ever uh, one of these people that thought being a lesbian was like a curse or something evil or something that was going to limit you in any way? Well, yes and no. Well, first I grew up Catholic, okay? So I was taught that homosexuality is a sin. So let's just start there, okay? okay. Me too, by the way. Okay. Catholic there also. There you go. And then when I grew, then I'm from a small town in New York, like small, where the judge is the plumber. So the only <laughs> lesbian was Mary. Okay, Mary from the pool, and she had like hair under her arms. Okay, so that was my barometer. And I'm like watching Charlie's Angels, thinking my life is over. I'm like, okay, that's what I want to be, and that's who I want to be like. And so I'm, you know. Yeah, I wanted to be like Farrah Fawcett. I think all gay boys were in love with Farrah Fawcett's hair. (laughs) Yeah, so were all the lesbians. Anyway, so um, that that was an issue. So that's literally, I think, why drugs and alcohol for me became a solution. Because it made me feel okay about myself. Right. And it made me forget that I was so different and I was like not going to grow up the way all my friends were growing up and they are crushes on boys and stuff like that. So I dove into two things, music. So people didn't ask me, Dina, who do you have a crush on? Who are you taking to the prom? Who are you doing that? Because I was like obsessed with music, obsessed with being a musician and you know, and then I would drink and use. So people, it masked a lot of right. my fear. Yeah, well, me too. That's where I first picked up my marijuana cigarette, 1975. Wow. You know? It's easier to get back then, probably still is, easier to get pot than to buy alcohol. Yeah. Yeah, it's easier to do. Yeah. Until it stopped working. And then at some point, it sounds like you had a crash and burn. Yeah, well, a lot of people have told me over the years before I got sober that I had a problem. Like every girlfriend I ever had, it always was a problem. My drinking was a problem. Mm. And my mother saw it. I mean, my mother gave me my first AA book when I was like 23. But that went over well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she was an OA, you know, and I remember her going to these OA meetings. So Overeaters she, Anonymous. Overeaters Anonymous. Yeah. And she gave me this a, this big book, and I tr- I carried this thing around from every geographic. I don't know. But I still never, ha- never cracked it open, or did you? No. Didn't really no. understand what it, just knew there's something my mother gave me that was important. Hmm. You know what I mean? And it was like filled with a lot of profound stuff. Hmm. Um, but anyway, I got sober at 32. So it took me all that time to really get it, hmm. but I did. And out of that came came everything. Everything. Oh my God! They say you get the keys to the kingdom. Right, right. They're not kidding. Yeah, because now you've got everything. a wife. You've got two kids. You've L- got a career. wife. Got kids. Yeah. Got a law practice, and then I give back a lot. I got involved in the legislative stuff on behalf of songwriters, which I do all pro bono, which took up an enormous amount of time the past five and a half years, plus a lot of money. And I got dove into that and, you know, and I, all kinds of things. I mean, you know, you just have to always help people, be of service, you know. It's just the, the way how you got to do it. Yeah. So, you know. You know that way we have a lot of millennials who listen to my, my show and listen, tune mm-hmm. in from all over the country. So if there's a young lesbian out there or a young trans woman or somebody who thinks they're having an issue with alcohol or drugs, what would you say to him or her? They should absolutely find a meaning they have to do that and they're everywhere they're absolutely everywhere and anyone can email me dina at lapaltlaw.com you have a problem with drugs and alcohol and you don't know what to do you email me there we go yeah that's the solution Mm. 
You know, you have a great story because you, you've kind of become gone from being a club kid playing the guitar in the clubs yeah. to somebody hobnobbing with U.S. senators creating new <laughs> law in Washington, D.C. It's crazy. D. They it think I'm crazy. very exciting, by it, the way. It is crazy. <laughs> you know, like, when I go to Washington, they're like, oh, Dina, when you come, it's very exciting for us. You I know? Bet I, you, you've got that New York <laughs> energy about you. You're, you're well, always... now that AOC is there, I don't know how yeah. exciting I can be yeah. anymore. She's you know pretty what I mean? exciting, too. She's very exciting. Of all your clients that you represent over the years, which any favorites or any ones that were really exciting or things that you got to say? Well, oh. I don't know if I have, like, I can, I can say that I have favorites. I have people that I identify with a lot on on different levels besides just business. Like Steven Tyler, for example. He's my true spirit animal. Mm. Like, I identify with him in business, in recovery, in spirituality, in the way he thinks, um, just instincts, because he's got, like, a sixth sense. Uh, so all of those things, fitness, yep. clothing, mm. fashion, like I don't think there's one part of his life that I'm completely not like connected to as far as He's an how amazing I feel. Guy. He I'm is glad a, we opened with Dream On from Aerosmith right. to open our segment yeah. with you. Yeah. 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 But I mean, look, a lot of my clients are really, really great. You know what I mean? And they all have things that they, you know, that they teach me on a regular basis, which I think is amazing. Yeah. Like, I learn more about technology from Dead Mouse than anything ever because mm. he's just as much as a technologist as he is a music artist. And it's mind blowing. I mean, his mother told me a story, which I've told my kids because my kids are six and they go, Well, Dead Mouse fixed a TV when he was seven. His <laughs> mother told me, Oh, Dean, I took, I put this TV out on the yard to get picked up by the trash because it wasn't working. And the next day, Joel had it all taken apart in his room and put it back together again, and it worked. I go, how old was he? She goes, seven. That's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Now, there were you were representing rappers, but things didn't always go well, right? Some of the rappers. Well, I, I worked for a long time, 13 years. I helped run the Tupac Shakur estate with his mother, Afeni. Mm -hmm. That was difficult because I had to go, you know, had to be adversarial with Death Row Records. And, you know, Suge Knight at the time was still Suge Knight. And... It was pretty frightening. I mean, as a matter of fact, the building that you and I are in, right. I've been in that building ever since I opened my law practice. And if you remember, that building never had a key card before or a 24-hour guard until the mid-2000s. Mm -hmm. And the reason they did that was because of... Your Death. clientele. That's right. <laughs> they have guns <laughs> and other scary That's things. Right. That's amazing. That's crazy. Well, I, you know, we're running out of time, but I want to thank you, Dina, for coming by and sharing some of your story. Of course. And you're such an inspiration, I think, for all people, oh. including our LGBT people. So oh. it's amazing having you here. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, John. All right. When we come back, we'll talk to Deputy Don Mueller from the LA Sheriff's Department about being out in law enforcement. Thank you for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
Jason, what was that? That was Dragnet, right? That was. That was Dragnet. We're uh, talking oh. to Lieutenant Don Mueller from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad so, to be here. So glad you're here. And I, I told the audience before you came on that you were Captain Commander, so I didn't know your rank. Now I know. <laughs> Lieutenant Don Mueller. <laughs> yes. You have been with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for 27 years? 29. 29, 29 years. years. Long time. <laughs> When did you come out of the closet? How long ago? Uh, well, I joined the department in 1990, okay. and I came out in 1992. And it was not easy to be a LGBT cop in oh, 1992, I'm Absolutely guessing. not. Were you, like, the only one at the time? At or? the time, I was the only one working on the department. Yeah, wow. up until 1989, our department had fired every single right. person who was right. gay or lesbian and acknowledged that publicly they yeah. were fired. They're, because they were gay Correct. or lesbian and they Correct. used to say that homosexuality was incompatible with law enforcement. Absolutely. Two, same with the military. Same with the military. military same argument. law enforcement you just cannot be yeah. LGBT and a member of the police. Which, which was absolutely ridiculous because yeah, well. we've had gay and lesbian and trans members forever right they just were forced to be in the closet up until that time that's right. the only wow. difference they were still here and doing the job and doing a great job okay so you displayed an act of courage by coming out in 1992 why i mean what prompted you to step out as the only out member of the sheriff's department well uh, part of it was due to a lawsuit that you I saw <laughs> yes. you filed deputy re- bruce boland was deputy my bruce boland yeah, who was a field training officer here in west hollywood right at one of our stations here who had been fired in 1989 for being gay uh, for being gay and i represented yes. him and we ent- and he ultimately got reinstated correct yeah right after that settlement then you became the That's one correct that ca- he's we set you settled that case in june of 1992 i yeah. came out in september um, wow. And a lot of that for my own personal reasons, too. It just happened to coincide with the change of the policy. And how was the reception from your fellow deputies? Huh? Uh, you know, it actually was much better than I ever expected. Hmm. I mean, I knew a lot of gay deputies, sergeants, lieutenants, even a couple captains who wow. are gay, that we had an underground group that yes, we'd meet, like go to barbecues, <laughs> go out to Palm Springs, pool parties wow. and such. But everybody was in the closet at that time. Did any of them feel threatened because you came out and they wanted to stay safely oh, in the absolutely. closet? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of them just tried to convince me not to do that. Wow. Um, because ha- that's a lifestyle we become in a habit of living in the closet, living right. in fear. And I just reached a point in my own personal life that I just thought it was ridiculous. Um, yeah. I was a good cop. I was a good deputy. I had a good reputation. I shouldn't be ashamed of who I love and who right. I come home to. Right. All my partners talk about their wives and their girlfriends and right. what they do all weekend. And every weekend, I had to lie about say, everything I did. Either you were dating a girl or you're oh, just a confirmed bachelor. I was dating Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> and she was hot. She was Okay. Totally hot. Nobody had met her. Nobody had ever met her. But I just got tired of having to do that. It was absolutely ridiculous because yeah. I actually had a partner who I was living with at the time. And right. I, I felt guilty that right. I'm denying him. Well, and I think most of us want to look up to law enforcement, to cops as being truthful and having integrity and being honest <laughs> it, and not corrupt or twisted. And, or, and that's where our system and our yeah. current administration has forced us to do the exact opposite of what we're supposed to be, having integrity and honesty and right. and saying that we should embody those values, yet they f- have forced us to lie or yeah. stay in the closet yeah. and do the exact opposite. And that you're absolutely right. Those don't go together. Yeah. In 92, when you came out, any of the deputies or anybody shun you or treat you badly? Or? Yeah, when I first came out, um, it was a little scary. 
coming back to work for the first time, um, the first day, it, in reality, a large group of the deputies I was working with, I was still working in the men's central jail at the time. Mm. Um, I'd only been on two years. I was a youngster deputy. Um, but a large group of the deputies came out in massive support of me. I got 30, 40 phone calls at home on my answer machine. We had those old answer <laughs> yes, machines back then. You have to describe screen, what it is. I screened all my cards with like a little cassette. <laughs> voice mail, oh, there were answering Absolutely. machines. Yeah. And, but I got call after call saying, Mueller, you've got balls. You're yeah. stupid, but you, <laughs> but you got courage. And yeah. they just backed me left and right. I had a handful of deputies who kind of went the other way and right, wouldn't yeah. talk to me. Their loss. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, exactly. Their yeah. loss. Yeah, I remember Absolutely. there were LAPD. I don't know if you remember Mark Goodman. Remember Absolutely. Mark Goodman? Yes, I know. Mark him. used to ha- have to work undercover vice, and he yeah. was tortured by right. being one of these guys pretending to be gay, right, and enticing men into lewd conduct. Yeah. And but he actually was gay. And that was one of the things I knew. A couple friends that had done that in Long Beach PD with a friend of mine that was forced to do that, who's still on the force there now. Wow. And. I had just said to myself and to my partner, I am not going to do that because yeah. I don't believe in these things. As you know, later on, I went to write our new policies on how we enforce loot conduct in a prevention-based method instead of an arrest-based yes, method yes. Um, to rewrite how we handle it for the whole county. But in those days, yes, they would draw a lot of us in and try and use us to basically uh, – Offend our own community. Yeah, it's, uh, turn around and uh, and actually, uh, yeah, yeah, a gay man pretending to be gay when he actually is is gay, gay and in then order to arresting people, for enticing other people. When we weren't doing that against straight men, no. If we had taken a woman up on Sunset Boulevard behind the right. House of Blues offering blowjobs, we would yes. have had a line of men down the street. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yet we did that against gay men as right. law enforcement as a whole across the country. Right, right. Uh, but we didn't against straight men. There, yeah. there was definitely a discrimination in how we were enforcing lewd conduct. Yeah, on Cool. Well, it's Absolutely. interesting to me, actually. So then, your being gay in the force became an asset. Then you had got to rewrite policy. Absolutely. And why was that? Because of the support of the sheriff, Lee Baca, at the time? Or? Uh, a combination of, yeah. one, enough of us finally coming out that... There's strength in numbers, absolutely. Yeah. And there's enough of us within the department who are gay and lesbian and trans ourselves right. that we were speaking up and saying, wait a minute, this isn't right. Yeah. And it's no different than any minority community, the communities of color. And we've had deputies who are black or Latino who have stood right. up and said, wait a minute, we're not treating the Latino community correctly. Right. We're not going to go up and, and work with ICE and, there's and wrestling correct. immigrants. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And there's credibility when that deputy is actually part of the community themselves. Yeah. So enough of us in the LGBTQ community start speaking up. Right. They finally were forced to have to listen yeah. um, and hear that. And then we had some cities, like the city of West Hollywood, who contracts with us, who has a lot of political power, right. who said to the sheriff, this is a crap. Yeah, yeah. No it's more, time. No, no more. more. No more loot conduct. It's no more. In this. fact, it was time at the change. Pacific Design Center. And yes, it was. Had to handle a group of clients. And it was. Again, it was a, a restroom ruckus. sting in the we Pacific like, Design Center. We were like good cop, bad cop. I was the bad cop. You were the good cop. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it works together. I love that. We're going to have to go to commercial break. When we come back, let's maybe talk about any of our listeners who are thinking about a career in law enforcement and what you would suggest. Sounds, Sounds good. good. All right. Look Thank you, to. gang. We're talking to Lieutenant Dom Mueller from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department here on Sidebar with John. Duran on Channel Q. Odyssey is 
giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. We're talking to Lieutenant Don Mueller from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. One of the, I think, the first to come out of the closet. Been out of the closet 27 years. And so, uh, you know, we know that Sheriff Lupe Valdez in Dallas is now lesbian. And there's certainly been other captains, uh, a lot of them primarily lesbians, who come out all over the country. It's very true. But if there are LGBT people listening out there that are thinking, hmm, a career in law enforcement, what, what would you say to them? Oh, absolutely. Just be... Get some intel and some information on what department you're applying for. Because mm. we have a lot of large metropolitan departments across the country that are very inclusive today and very diverse and are accepting of LGBTQ and people. So in the big metropolitan areas, more accepting rather than, let's say, a small town? In general, yes. Yeah. Um, and that's just probably the same for our communities. Most of us feel safer in the metropolitan areas because we have visible communities and there's strength in numbers. Very true. Um, and it's been demanded by those communities. So if you're looking at large departments like NYPD or L.A. or San Francisco or Chicago, generally you're going to have departments that you've got hundreds of openly gay, lesbian, and even trans officers working in those departments and doing well. Do we have any trans officers, uh, trans deputies in the L.A. Oh, County Sheriff's Department? Like we have the largest number in the entire United States. We have 12 transgender tra- deputies in our department. I did not currently. know that. Yes. I did 11 men, trans men and two trans women. I did not know that. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, most large departments have a couple. Um, I think New York and D.C. are probably second to us, and they have four and five each. Yeah. We actually have 12 currently in the that, L.A. County Sheriff's I Department. I did not know that. Well, yes. good for us. Yes. Yay, yay, Los We've Angeles. We've made some great strides. It's you, a great beginning. Do you have to have a degree or a high school diploma? What are some of the basic requirements in order to go to the academy? Uh, basic requirements as a whole, and they vary a little bit from department to department on who you're hiring with. But, for instance, in the state of California, you just have to be a U.S. citizen. You cannot have any felony convictions. Um, Got to be in generally good health. Um, be able to pass physical examinations, psychological examinations, no hard drug use in the recent past. Um, sometimes further back depends on how long, but recently you can't have any actual hard drug use. Um, and have a high school diploma with most departments. A few are requiring AAs. Okay. Um, very few. I don't know of two in our entire state that require a BA. Hmm. Our department currently is still at this time uh, requiring just a high school diploma. Our sheriff's looking to possibly move that to an AA minimum, but it has not happened at this time yet. So I got to say, I've, I've often thought I would look really cute in the uniform. But, but <laughs> one of the perks of being yes, gay and in uniform. Yes, just <laughs> absolutely. Be, just to put on the uniform. But I, I can't bring myself to imagine using a gun. Sure. With another human being. But that's yeah, obviously something. It, it, being in law enforcement is not for everyone. Right. Uh, my husband is in finance, and I've got good friends that work in medicine. I am not cut out to be a doctor. Right. I just cannot see myself cutting somebody open. It freaks me out. Right. Um, but I can do I'm law enforcement. I love the excitement. I love the adrenaline rush. Yeah. It's not for everyone, of course. Right. But there are those in our community who are in the military and who are in law enforcement. And we have people who are more 
fitted to be in design or medicine right. or healthcare or whatever. Exactly. I mean, we have diversity in our community like every community. And those of ours that are interested in something like law enforcement, I would absolutely encourage them, encourage them to move forward and don't hesitate. I'm, it's the best decision I've ever made. And you can make a real difference in our community and be part of protecting our own community. Yeah, okay. Now, you just lay out like a half dozen or more <laughs> reasons why to be a cop, which I think yeah. is excellent. But are there any downsides or any parts of it that that people should really seriously think over before deciding a career in law enforcement? Well, I mean, it's uh, much like medicine. It's 24-7. We work nights. We work weekends. We work holidays. I've worked so many Christmases, I can't right. <laughs> count. Right. That's part of this career. Yeah. And you have to be willing to do that. Yeah. Um, it can be difficult on a relationship because you may be working mm. from 11 o'clock till 7 in the morning when your partner's working daytime. Right. Um, it, those kinds of things you have to consider and, and you're as being part. Often working with a lot of very troubled people, you're absolutely addicts who are strung yeah. out on crystal meth. Most uh, of our calls are not to the nicest part of our communities. <laughs> getting a cat out of a tree. Yeah, right? those, in fact, totally I don't think I've ever even had one of those. Television calls. fiction, I it's think, truly primarily. is. Yeah, a lot of the people we deal with are those that are troubled. They're having, they're in the yeah. worst time of their life at three in the morning when the dishes are flying and they're ripping the phone cord out of the wall and the screaming, the yelling, the mm. blood, yeah. and that's when we tend to be walking in the door but that's also when you can make the biggest difference in someone's life absolutely and absolutely help get them the support they need get them the counseling they need get them the shelter that they need help them realize they deserve better than the situation they're in when they don't believe that themselves helping our people in our community who are suicidal and and really all the only message they've ever heard their whole lives is you're not good enough from their own parents from their priests from their pastor and then you come in uniform at three in the morning when they're ready to end it and they see a cop who sits there and tells them, no, you deserve better. You're mm. a wonderful person. Wow. I'm gay also. And you just see the tears just start flowing. Wow. And, it, and you can help them on that you first step. You just described step. one of your most rewarding moments. Absolutely. Yeah, it's one of the reasons the I way, love doing this. Your eyes are tearing up. I can yeah. tell. I can tell. I, I have to say, I, I guess we now expect our cops to not just be cops, but social workers, psychologists, counselors. I mean, we're asking a lot of our If cops. you're going to do this job correctly – that's you're absolutely right and that's the mentality if you're interested in going into this career that's what you need to look in going into it's more than just writing tickets or taking people to jail right um it's a much broader to really help our community heal and move forward and improve you've got to have a lot of those tools in your uh (laughs) in your tool belt yeah absolutely looking statistically a lot lawyers are really high doctors are really high but cops are really high on alcoholism drug addiction addiction because sure. of the nature of the work. Is, yeah, that, th- is that it primarily? I, I think it is, but it also has to do with when you start this career on knowing you're going to be facing a lot of difficulty, a lot of stress, a lot of, you're going to be seeing situations that most people should never have to see Correct. or walk into yeah. and setting up a support system for yourself on how you're going to deal with that when that happens. 90% of my friends are not cops outside of work. Mm. Um, and I think that's good for me because it helps me stay balanced. Yeah. helps me have people to bounce off of that are not also dealing with the same issues and the same negative effects. It just helps me keep positive. I'm involved in numerous community organizations. MCC Church is MCC a Church. big one for you. Yeah, absolutely. Aren't you a part-time pastor or something? Yeah, I am an ordained pastor. That um, is amazing. <laughs> I'm not preaching full-time anymore. It was too much to do both. Wow. But I, uh, yes, I am ordained and I'm very active in MCC, um, which 
keeps the positive, the good things going in my life, along with Congregation Cola, me and Rabbi Denise Sager. And She's been a guest here. She's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it keeps me balanced. Wow, that's really cool. Any regrets about being a cop? Absolutely no. That's great. I, I was hoping I, you'd say no, that. I, I I've had none. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's some people in our community that don't understand it and and stereotype us and are angry at police because of the treatment they've received as gay and lesbian and trans people or mm -hmm. people of color. Mm -hmm. But I try and stand, hear that, understand that, not react to them, and let them realize you can't stereotype us as law enforcement either because we have good and bad everywhere from target and bank of america to the police department or the sheriff's department very true we're gonna have to wrap it up but i want to thank you lieutenant mueller for coming on today and talking i hope you'll come back because i love talking about this and and, sure. and bring one of these trans deputies i oh, really love to not talk a problem to him or her. love that it absolutely awesome. we will all right gay we're gonna take a commercial break when we come back dr michael gottlieb one of the co-discoverers of the hiv virus will be my next guest you're listening to sidebar with john duran here on channel q Dr. Michael Gottlieb, uh, one of the co-discoverers of the HIV virus. I just say you're the discoverer of the HIV oh, virus. You, yeah, <laughs> I don't count that Pasteur guy or the other guy who pops up. <laughs> you know, we have a lot of uh, millennials who listen to us around the country who may not know about what happened in 1981. So can you describe? Well, we had a, uh, a surprise in 1981, and that was the uh, discovery of... of uh, you know, people, you know, with HIV, although we didn't know it was HIV at the time. Right. And you were a very young doctor at the time and noticed that some of your patients were coming down with strange diseases. Is that yeah, I was uh, 33. I was at UCLA as junior faculty and uh, saw just a number of patients who had infections that they just shouldn't have had. And that was the clue that they had an immune deficiency. Right. So like Kaposi's sarcoma or CMV retinitis or pneumonia carini, hemocystis. Absolutely. Things that you just never saw in people coming in previously healthy, coming in off the street with right. these bizarre diseases. And so what? What? how did you put the pieces together to start to identify a new virus? Well, fortunately, I was an immunologist by training, and uh, these illnesses were clearly a sign of immune deficiency. So we looked in the lab and, and with colleagues, we found that the CD4 cells or the T cells as it's commonly call, called, had pretty much gone missing in these patients with advanced immune deficiency. Hmm. And so the combination of these unusual infections and a T cell or immune deficiency uh, pretty well uh, established that this was something new and then we reported it to CDC. Mm -hmm. and that was published June 5th, 1981. Wow. Now, if the back then they used to say the average lifespan of the HIV virus from infection to showing up was seven to ten years. So these patients presumably then might have been infected in seventy one to seventy four. Probably, John. I would think maybe late seventies because okay. you know when you the Red Cross did uh, look back programs where they looked at frozen blood from donors that they had throughout the seventies, and the first positives start turning up in seventy seven. Mm. So these people who were the first patients with AIDS that we saw probably, as you point out, had the infection f for four years or five years. And so they were kind of on the close end of the curve right? because the incubation period from infection to an AIDS diagnosis, as you point out, is more like 11 years. But some of these patients may have been very susceptible and they got it after three or four years. How many uh, patients do you think you have watched 
pass from life oh, to death. Oh, gosh, I don't want to think about that. It's but overwhelming, it, uh, isn't it? It was kind of overwhelming. It's probably several hundred, you know, dating from the early days, uh, early 80s through the mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, things started to get better. Yes, fortunately. And uh, patients started surviving longer. Of course, we, we didn't have all the kinks in the therapy ironed out, and it's taken us the last uh, 20 years to to improve treatment to the point where we're at today. Yeah, which is the cocktail treatment of in protease inhibitors with antiretrovirals and yeah. mixing them all up together. So it's mixing them all up together, and now in many instances, it's just one pill a day. Yeah. Now, I was a brand new lawyer back in the uh, mid-'80s, and so I... I, that's how I got my practice. I was supposed to be a corporate lawyer. And, of course, life threw a curveball. <laughs> and all <laughs> these all. people at us all. <laughs> and all these people started showing up at my law office door. We were very sick. And they needed wills and trusts. And some needed bankruptcy. Some were fighting eviction. Some were losing their jobs. But at the beginning, it was a lot of gay men. But then the other demographics started coming in. Seniors with bad blood transfusions. Hemophiliacs of all ages. And uh, I'm guessing you started to see all that, too. Yeah, we started to see that. And, and uh, you know, I, I've never asked anybody how they contracted HIV because uh, it makes no difference to me. I'm, I'm basically a doctor, take care of patients and right. uh, treat everybody the same and, yeah. and, and, you know, fight the virus. But uh, today, uh, in terms of new infections, there's a lot of new infections occurring in the South, primarily among heterosexual adults and, hmm. and, and gay men as well. Hmm. And so the focus of uh, where HIV is happening in the United States has shifted significantly. Yeah. In the course of your life, I imagine you've met, I, I'm, I have to say, you're one of my heroes. You're oh, one of my you, heroes. I, I think people who know the history of HIV and AIDS, you are up there as a legend. But some of the others we've met along the way, Elizabeth Taylor, who, like yourself, a straight ally, just came into the midst of this epidemic. No, Elizabeth was uh, remarkable. Uh, she signed on uh, very early in the epidemic. She had a lot of gay men who were friends of hers. Right. Uh, who died of HIV, Rock Hudson, Tony Perkins. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so she has been a friend, and she continues to be an inspiration yeah. uh, to everybody who wants to move uh, the ball further down the field and, and improve treatment, get treatment out to everybody, right. uh, educate, uh, and hopefully uh, find a cure. Now, because you were doing so many HIV cases, did anyone or people ever presume you to be gay because a lot of your clientele were gay? Oh, sure. I'm sure that I have patients today who think I'm gay. <laughs> that's fine. It's, you know, I'm, on, I'm honorary. I don't think you're gay, by the way. That's, I bet your that, wife. That's, no, it's totally cool. I, I'm, I'm honorary. <laughs> <laughs> did you... Uh, what was the hardest thing about, I mean, working in this disease? Because we had not only people dying at a very young age, but they had homophobia laced in there, drug use laced in there, a whole lot of social ills. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, it came out of nowhere and it was a surprise to everybody and institutions had a hard time dealing with it and, and didn't do very well in dealing with it for about 10 years of the epidemic. And that, that was a very, very hard time. Uh, today, uh, it's considered uh, a plus in one's resume to be uh, uh, involved with HIV or involved in improving treatment. But, right, but right. back then, it wasn't. Yeah. So uh, the other hard thing has been, of course, the stigma, which just hangs on and is so unfortunate mm -hmm. uh, because uh, stigma is uh, difficult to root out. And uh, requires, uh, like any kind of bias, requires constant uh, gardening and, and weeding. And it just hasn't happened enough 
with mm. HIV. You know, one of my early clients uh, during the mid to late 80s was ACT UP here uh-huh. in Los Angeles. And what I tell people the story of ACT UP, it was a bunch of suburban kids who got radicalized by the inaction of the government. It was the inaction that created ACT UP. Oh, I, so good. And I have uh, in my practice a lot of ACT UP veterans mm. from those early years. Well, uh, we just lost one. Jim Chud, of course, just passed. Jim yeah. Chud, and, yeah. and, and uh, it's very sad to, to lose him. Uh, but people made a difference. I think that's the lesson, is that uh, when nobody's paying attention to something and you've got to draw attention to it and, and, and uh, improve treatment or find treatment, because we didn't have any, uh, people uh, lay down in the streets. They put their bodies down in the streets right. by the FDA, and, and, and that stimulated the action. Yeah, including the drug approval process, because the drug approval process was often very lengthy to get new drugs approved. Yeah, back then uh, there was no uh, alternate pathway for people with life-threatening diseases, and I think we've learned a lot, you know, from the HIV epidemic in terms of uh, accelerating uh, approval for drugs for people who need them now, not in five or ten years. Right, and in fact, didn't the parallel tracking or the the approve that was created out of the HIV yeah, epidemic. Sure, sure was. So it used to be that the FDA would first, is the drug going to kill you? That was the first test. Right. And then the next test was efficacy, whether it was effective or not. Yeah, well, the, the mindset at FDA was based on thalidomide, which was uh, caused birth defects in, in babies from a sleeping pill called thalidomide mm. in the 60s. And so the FDA wanted to guard, sort of overreacted in terms of guarding us against the toxicity of a drug. Whereas people with life-threatening illnesses for which there was no treatment were willing to take the risk. Yes, and thank God, because that's how we ended up getting so many drugs. One of the first drugs I took was uh, AZT. That was an awful drug. Awful. God, I was on that for just a very short period of time, and then we, thank God, other stuff came out. It was awful, and we didn't know the correct dose, so we were overdosing people early on, and we, we really... We thank uh, our early patients for volunteering for those clinical trials because they experienced uh, some toxicity. Wow. We've got to take a quick commercial break. We're talking to Dr. Michael Gottlieb, the discoverer of the HIV virus. We'll be talking to him some more after the break. You're listening to us here on Sidebar with John Duran on the new Channel Q. We are talking to Dr. Michael Gottlieb. Um, who, I, I, I'm not, I don't want to say this wrong now, discovered the HIV virus or just, well, uh, that's not technically correct. Uh, How, te- technically, it's identified the first patients. Identified the first patients with AIDS. HIV. AIDS. Although yeah. back then it was called GRID, right? Gay-related. I'm afraid so. Yeah, because we weren't sure what it was. That was right? unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Well, it might have helped, you know, get, maintain, or put in the mind of the public that well, it was a gay thing. Well, yeah, you didn't want it to be a gay thing, and uh, it, it unfortunately did get characterized as a gay disease in the 80s, and uh, it's been an educational process ever since. Right to, to, to teach people about that. That it isn't. Some of the heroes, of course, our own member of Congress here in Los Angeles, Henry Waxman, oh, yeah. Michael Berman, Howard Berman, I'm sorry, really picked up the mantle. Here. Oh, sure. I remember Henry Waxman uh, held hearings at the Gay and Lesbian Center um, in 1981, and he said something like, well, this disease had broken out among uh, uh, white Norwegian tennis players, uh, it would have elicited a much uh, larger response, uh, response from the federal from government. The feds. Yeah, but, I think that's uh, true. And he, he indeed was a hero over the years in legislation and holding hearings and, and getting getting uh, the NIH to uh, 
uh, start developing treatments. Now, in 94, 95, that's when the inhibitors, protease inhibitors, first started to hit. And did you start to think, okay, hope. This is hope, finally. Well, that was a big deal. That's uh, 1995 in uh, Vancouver, B.C. We had a big international meeting, and that's where we learned a couple of things. We learned about viral load because we, uh, as a measure of success, getting the viral load to undetectable. And we really didn't have a viral load test prior to the mid-'90s. And then the cocktail was presented there, and we showed, uh, or rather researchers showed, that they could uh, get the viral load to undetectable. And we were very excited. Yeah. You know, I remember the early years, it was AZT, but then it was DDI and DDC, and then it was Compound Q, and then there was all these things. You've and got a people good were, I, I, you'd be amazed at the stuff I remember. Can't remember my cell phone number, but I can remember all this. <laughs> but today, is there stuff out on the horizon that gives us more hope that. Uh, well, the stuff we have is very good. We've got uh, two or three or four one-pill, once-a-day combinations that easily get the viral load to undetectable. That is, if people take them regularly. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the side effects associated with this new generation of drugs is much milder and, 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 and safer than what people took in past years, the right. drugs that you mentioned. Yeah. So the next step, of course, is, gee, can we cure HIV? Right. That and, was my next question, by uh, the way. I thought so. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the strategies are out there. We have two established cures. Both of those patients had to have bone marrow transplants, which is kind of a big deal and really not widely applicable. But some of these gene therapies that are coming online, uh, CRISPR, things like that that you hear about, gene editing therapies, Hmm. uh, may prove useful. And also uh, there's uh, a a strategy to wake the virus up from cells in which it's hiding and then clobber it with a second drug coming in. So it'd be like a two-drug combination. You wake it up and then you uh, put the kibosh on it. And the thought was that the virus would hide in the lymphatic tissue, in the lymph nodes, correct? Well, it looks like it hides in about one in a million... uh, uh, T cells oh. that are sort of squirreled away in the lymph nodes and in the blood, hmm. and so those are and, and it's hiding and not active, and so um, the two-step process would involve activating it, so coaxing it to come out, coaxing it to come out, come <laughs> yeah. on out, come out and play, and come on out, boom. and then wham, you have a hammer. <laughs> wow, very, very, very interesting. Well, that's hopeful for the future. The question is, can we distribute it all over the world? Because a lot of third world countries are just dealing, they're dealing with poverty and hunger. Absolutely. Yeah. So the good news there is that uh, through a number of programs and, and through some of the pharmaceutical companies and PEPFAR, which uh, George Bush II uh, 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 created, uh, we're getting medication out to, uh, to developing countries. Uh, such that a lot of people are are getting on medication and having their virus uh, suppressed to undetectable. And a little country like Malawi, Africa, there's Mm. a prospect of getting to 90-90-90 pretty darn soon. In other words, 90% of people uh, know, have tested and know they have it. 90% of people with HIV know that they have it. 90% are linked to care and 90% are undetectable. I hadn't heard the 90-90-90 before. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's an interesting... That's strategies. And that's strategies that's uh, afoot in San Francisco and other cities right. in the U.S. as well. Well, I know here in West, in my city, West Hollywood, we are giving out free prep 
Anyone who wants to come in can get access prep. And that seems to be an effective strategy, too, to keep the negatives negative Absolutely. at the yeah. same time. That sort of a, a, a twofold strategy. One is keep the negatives negative through prep. And then the positives get them on treatment and undetectable so that they're untransmissible. Right. And if you get at it through those two angles, we can, you know, put the lid on the HIV epidemic here in the U.S. Hmm. Did you ever think when you were in med school that this was the path you were going to travel? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't, but I'm glad it is. Yeah, I bet it's made all the difference. Oh, it's been uh, it's been a good career. And, and to see in, in my lifetime something go from untreatable to easily treatable has just been a treat. That is. Any f- memories? I mean, I know I have lots of memories, both good and bad, throughout the 30-some years of the virus that I can always recall that were mind-numbing or mind-changing. Any come to mind for you? Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, meeting Elizabeth Taylor, that was big. <laughs> That's big. I met her at the Abbey once. I, I really, there are not many celebrities that I fawn over. I fawned over her. Well, yeah. That was big. Meeting a couple presidents was cool. But uh, the 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 difficult ones are, are remembering patients who I remember from from those years who, yeah, who that wanted to live that wanted that to live wanted to live so didn't, badly didn't make it yeah I will never understand you know I I had a law firm of four attorneys and two of my partners died in the epidemic and two of us survived and I have no idea why chance random whatever the reasons you know well that's a good thing but uh, it it. Uh, they were difficult times for sure. Yeah, they sure were. God, and they sure were. Well, I, you know, I, I think you've given us all some hope about the years to come. You know, whether it's manageability of HIV or possibly a cure, and the whole gene splicing to me is something I know very little about. And I know a little about it as well, but uh, <laughs> smarter people than I are, are out there working on it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, I, I want to thank you for coming by. I hope you'll come back again. Anytime, and, love to. And talk about all this. Are you ready to take us out? All right. We so, can go. Yeah. We have been visiting with Dr. Michael Gottlieb uh, here on Sidebar with John Duran, and we're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll come back to the closing rant from me. Uh, thank you for tuning in to Channel Q. Welcome back, gang. And a big shout out to our newest cities that are joining the Channel Q family. Hey, out there in Atlanta and St. Louis, New Orleans, and Philadelphia, welcome to the Channel Q family. So glad to have you all on board listening to us. You know, we're now all just about all across all the media markets in the United States, and we're only six months young. And uh, it's amazing that uh, we're doing so well with uh, you know LGBT people wanting to stay connected to one another. And what a... Uh, a great uh, show we had today. And, uh, you know, I, I, to me, all three of my guests today are living legends in their own world. Dina LaPolt uh, being, you know, powerful woman in Hollywood and the music industry and an out lesbian and, and starting out as, you know, a guitar player in a girl band and, and ending up uh, hobnobbing with U.S. senators on Capitol Hill rewriting copyright legislation to protect artists. She's just uh, really made a name for herself. And then Deputy Don Mueller, Lieutenant Mueller, who came out of the closet 27 years ago when it wasn't easy to be an out member of the Sheriff's Department. And now he's a a lieutenant and he's writing policy for the greater Los Angeles area. And uh, as he mentioned, he's now got 12 
<clears throat> transgendered members of the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And I'm gonna, I said as I was walking him to the elevator, I said, would you please bring some of these trans deputies? Because I'd love to hear about you know their journey. And he said, absolutely. So I look forward to having him back. And then finishing off with uh, Dr. Michael Gottlieb. And, you know, I've known Michael for a good 30 years, and uh, and he, he's very humble. He's, I mean, he tried to say, you know, that he wasn't really a discoverer. He was. He was 81. He's the one put HIV on the map at the same time that Gallo was doing the same thing in France. And between the two of them, they were able to... Uh, Began, uh, we all began this same journey together. And as I was walking Michael out just now down the hallway, you know, he talks about seeing ghosts. And, you know, I, I still see ghosts, too, from that time because a lot of these relationships that we made during the height of the AIDS epidemic, they're not complete. They're just not complete. We miss our friends and our loved ones. And, and so I imagine continue to see ghosts, which brings me to, you know, where we are. And uh, it is Easter weekend. And whether you celebrate uh, Pesach or Passover or whether you uh, celebrate Easter or maybe you don't celebrate anything. It's just a good reason to brunch. Uh, and I was talking to Jason, my producer here earlier, where I know Ramadan's coming up in about another month. Did I say it right? Ramadan. You did. Yeah. There's a lot of great, great things happening. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it is the season and all of these cultures tell the story of uh, of uh, of real despair or desolation, and then having to go through uh, death and then resurrection, and that is in fact the story of the Easter story. And I'm not going to go religious on you all. I'm a practicing Episcopalian, but I promise I won't go religious on you all. But I will. I do want to talk about devastation and resurrection because those are big themes for at least practicing Christians at Easter time. And uh, I will tell you that there was a period of time when it did seem like it was uh, the darkest period of time in our community's very short-lived existence. So I came out in 1978 and, uh, you know, Stonewall had just happened Less than 10 years prior to that, if we count Stonewall as one of the markers, although there's a lot of LGBT history prior to Stonewall, by the way. But let's just use 1969 as one of the markers along our journey. And so the community had really uh, just started to come of age, hadn't even been, you know, 10 years. And, uh, you know, coming out in the late 70s, uh, no matter what your occupation, and here in California, to be, you couldn't be a, a teacher, for example. There were, if you were found out to be gay or lesbian, you could be fired uh, for being a homosexual and thinking that teaching children was incompatible with homosexuality. And certainly discharge from the military was common and discharge from law enforcement, as Lieutenant Mueller described. If somebody was found to be gay or lesbian, they were discharged from law enforcement. There wasn't even talk of a transgendered person serving. And of course, out of all that, just coming out and trying to find our place and and facing not only ridicule, but loss of career and loss of livelihood, loss of family, loss of church, loss of everything, our community still managed to place a foothold in the ground and say, we're not going anywhere. And, and, And then we added a deadly epidemic in 1981 that took hundreds of thousands of our community members over the next 15 years, hundreds of thousands, 500,000 plus. And you would think that in the midst of all the oppression 
and the hatred and the discrimination and now a deadly disease, this dark, dark period of time known as the 1980s in, in our LGBT history, that we would have been not only on the brink of catastrophe, but complete and total annihilation and devastation and perhaps even wiped off the history books. I mean, if you think about it, you have marginalized people who are not allowed in church or state or institution or to practice, uh, you know, any form of service in clergy. And then you throw in a deadly epidemic. And if you put all that down on paper, you would predict, yeah, these people are not going to make it. There's just no way they're going to make it. But instead, the exact opposite happened. Out of all that devastation, out of all that heartache, out of all that loss, out of all that death and dying, out of all that hatred, people clung to one another uh, like like we were lifesavers for, and we were lifesavers for one another, like people in a lifeboat. And when you're in a lifeboat together, it doesn't really matter very much whether your your gender or your gender identity or your sexuality or where you're newly out or whether you've been out for a while. Suddenly, we were all in the same lifeboat together. And we were struggling, and we built a community of people and a response, not only to the epidemic, but a response to homophobia and a a response to discrimination along the way. And you flash forward to where we are today, where we actually have Pete Buttigieg out there campaigning for president of the United States. And, you know, I, I, I look at him. First of all, he's a lot younger than me. And I listened to him, and his coming out story was so personally uh, moving to me because he did that thing that so many of us did back in the 70s or the 80s or, you know, if, if there was a cure for this, I would take the pill. If you would tell me how to cut this out of me, I will cut it out and leave it behind. And we certainly know for a lot of LGBT people, there is a moment of despair and despondency where we all just wish we could pray away the gay, as the fundamentalists say. But then something else happens. Instead, there is a form of compromise and acceptance that occurs, and instead we place our feet on the ground and we're firmly rooted within our LGBT communities where instead of becoming devastated, we flourish. And so there is a resurrection story, isn't there, in the LGBT community's history and in each of our individual lives, that out of despair and out of despondency and out of isolation and out of feeling unique and alone and nobody's ever going to love me and I will never get a chance to love, out of that darkest, deepest moment of desolation, incredible life flourishes and springs forward. And uh, it, it really is an Easter story for us all. Not only our coming out stories, but the success of the modern LGBT movement. It is an Easter story. So happy Pesach, happy Passover, happy Easter time, happy Ramadan next month. And uh, I want to thank you all for tuning in next week. Jackie Subek, one of the leaders on the marijuana reform movement here in the state of California. She'll be one of my guests. Look forward to talking to her and so many others. I hope you all have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on the new Channel Cube.